We've been looking at 1 Corinthians for quite some time now. And last week we came to a new section of this letter. It's a section about doing church for the glory of God. At the end of chapter 10, Paul said, Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Then at the start of chapter 11, he began to teach the Corinthians about glorifying God in all they do as a church, as a fellowship of God's people. First, Paul addressed the question of gender in church life. How are we, as male and female, to relate to one another and to God in the church? And now in our passage this morning, Paul turns to another aspect of church life, the church's celebration of the Lord's Supper. And he tells us if we are going to do church to the glory of God, then we must always remember the Lord. Not just say his name or sing his name or pray his name, but remember him, his sacrifice, his reign, and his return. And Paul says we are not truly remembering the Lord if his sacrifice, his reign, and his return have no impact on our lives. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you're using a church Bible, it's page 1152. Or in the larger print Bibles, 1782. We'll pick up where we left off last week and read from verse 17 down to the end of the chapter, verse 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 
everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill. And a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. This is God's word. And it tells us it is possible to worship God in a way that actually dishonors him rather than glorifying him. And when our worship dishonors God, we are in serious trouble. No doubt there are a few different ways that our worship could dishonor God, but here Paul mentions one specific way. He says, the way we treat others in the church can destroy the church's worship. In the passage we looked at last time, Paul told the Corinthians they were getting it right when it came to men and women in the church. Back in verse 2, he said, I praise you. But on this issue, they are most definitely not getting it right. In verse 17, he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. That is a striking thing to say. It's all the more striking when we remember the Corinthian church was proud of its spiritual gifts and its knowledge. There was a lot going on in this church. They were busy putting their gifts and their knowledge to work. And although they might not have said it out loud, they probably felt God was pretty lucky to have them on his team. I've noticed recently it seems just about standard for church websites to announce on their homepage, we are a thriving, vibrant church with lively worship. Well, that was the Corinthian church. At least, that was the Corinthian church in its own mind. But Paul says, actually, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but your meetings do more harm than good. It would be better if you didn't meet at all. Because whatever good points your meetings have, the net result of your meetings is negative. And the heart of the problem is how they are treating one another. First of all, Paul mentions their attitude and then how that attitude is showing itself in this particular congregation. Look at verse 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When the church comes together, they are not truly coming together. 
they're divided. Now, this is not new information. Paul mentioned it all the way back in chapter 1. But we are given new insight here about the attitude behind these divisions. We've noticed in previous weeks, Paul often in this letter will either quote or he will summarize various things the Corinthians are saying among themselves. Some of their slogans that we've already heard are, I have the right to do anything. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. We all possess knowledge. An idol is nothing at all in the world. In each case, Paul quoted their slogan, or the sound bite that was going around the church, and then he responded to it. And that is almost certainly what's going on here in verse 19. The Corinthians are not denying that there are divisions among them. They're excusing those divisions by saying, there have to be divisions to show which of us are the best. Which of us have God's approval? Because, Paul, God is really blessing some of us for our faithfulness to Him. He's causing some of us to prosper. And unfortunately, that cannot be said about some of the others in the church. Things aren't going so well for them. So what's happening is a clique is forming in the church. A group who think of themselves as the inner circle. And look at the result in verse 20. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and the other gets drunk. We'll see in a few moments, Jesus gave the church a special symbolic meal. He gave it to the church to help them understand and remember his sacrifice on the cross. He gave this meal to the church to unite the church round his sacrifice on the cross. And the Corinthian church is meeting to celebrate the Lord's Supper. They were not doing it exactly as we do it today. Apparently, they ate a full meal together first and then ended with the Lord's Supper. Or at least some of them ate a full meal together. Almost certainly, it was the more well-off members of the church. You know, at this point in time, there were no church buildings as we think of them today. That development was still well in the future. So the church met in homes. And those who owned the bigger homes would obviously have been the wealthier Christians. They would also have had more flexibility in their timetables. And so they would meet, apparently, earlier than everyone else, maybe over a roast and a few bottles of wine, while the poorer Christians and the ones who were slaves were still at work. Then later in the evening, when those less affluent Christians finally clocked off and hurried across the city to join the others, they arrived to find empty plates empty bottles, and their fellow Christians plastered. Can you imagine the atmosphere when they then tried to join together for the Lord's Supper? Do you think it was harmonious? 
unlikely, highly unlikely. Verse 22, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Paul says to these Christians, I'm not asking you to change your social standing or your economic situation, but at least you could eat in your own home first. At least you could arrive sober at the meeting place and at the same time as those who have less than you. But what you're actually doing at the moment is humiliating those who have less than you. Maybe you'd say it's not intentional, but in that case, it's thoughtless. You're not considering them. And either way, you're rubbing their noses in what you have, and they don't. And Paul says, when you do that, you are despising the church of God. Sometimes preachers have this idea that what they do is the most important aspect of the church's worship. Sometimes musicians have a bit of a tug of war with preachers because they feel their contribution is the most significant. But in fact, as significant as music and preaching might be, the most significant aspect of our worship is how we treat each other. That is what makes or breaks our worship. That is what makes our worship either good and worthwhile or harmful and therefore better not done at all. Yes, preaching can be either helpful or harmful to the extent it's faithful to God's word or not. Music can be helpful or harmful for the same reason. But the way we treat each other is so crucial because it either displays or it denies the very heart of what the church is. And Paul is saying if we as church members dishonor one another, if we speak and act in ways that are thoughtless of one another, we're showing that we despise the church. And so whatever other impressive things we might be doing and saying as a church, whatever solid doctrine we might affirm, whatever inspiring music we might produce, if we are dishonoring one another, it is not worship at all. And we might as well not bother because what we're doing is just an insult to God. We've seen that in Corinth, that dishonoring of others was taking a very specific form. It's very unlikely to take exactly the same form for us. But there are plenty of ways to snub one another. Plenty of ways to fail to care for one another. There are plenty of ways to be cliquish and leave people out. There are plenty of ways to speak and behave thoughtlessly toward others. And this passage is here to get us thinking about that. Are there ways 
we could be failing to honor one another and include one another and share with one another. Are there, could there be brothers and sisters sitting here who belong to Christ but feel like outsiders in Christ's church? Maybe because of their age or their income or their marital status or their race. What about the online stuff that goes on among us, social media? Things we put on WhatsApp or Facebook. Do we think about what we're doing and saying? And how it might impact others? Do we think about our responses to what others post? And the impact those can have? According to the New Testament, the way we treat others in the church makes or breaks our worship. Verse 20, Paul said, when you eat the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. In other words, sure, you're eating the bread and you're drinking the wine, but your treatment of each other is a denial of what the supper means. And now Paul comes to focus on what the supper means. He reminds us the self-sacrificing love of Jesus is the living heart of the church. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Twice in these verses, Jesus says the supper is to be a remembrance of him. He gave this meal to the church so that his self-sacrificing death on the cross would always be central to the church. It's so simple. Just bread and wine. But the symbolism is so powerful. Jesus took one loaf and broke it as a representation of his soon-to-be broken body. And when he said, my body is for you, the you is plural. The one loaf is shared among us all, representing the truth that Christ died one death for us all. He didn't do one thing to save the rich and the educated and the healthy and the likable, and then something else to save the poor and the underprivileged and the weak and the unpleasant. No, he did one thing for all of us. His body was broken for all those who admit their need of God's forgiveness and who trust in Jesus as the only way to forgiveness. 
The one loaf we all share is a symbol that we all share the same need, and that need is met the same way by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And the cup of wine, Jesus said, is a representation of the new covenant sealed with his blood. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Israel after he led them out of slavery in Egypt. He committed himself to them to be their God, and they responded to God's commitment by committing to live as his faithful people. That covenant in the Old Testament was sealed with the blood of animal sacrifices. The New Testament tells us Jesus' blood sealed a new, greater covenant where all peoples and nations could be freed from their slavery to sin and death, where they could experience God's acceptance and be bound together into a new community, God's new covenant people. So if we put all that together, the symbolism of the bread and of the wine, what do we have? We have a community of all kinds of people united by just one thing. Their sin has been paid for by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Christ's sacrifice has made them one people. Other distinctions are not relevant anymore. Income levels, musical preferences, personality types, political persuasion, race, age, None of those are reasons to separate and divide anymore. All of those divisions have been overcome by the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. And when we gather around this table and share this meal, we are proclaiming that. We're announcing God has formed us into one people through the cross of Christ. And we do this, verse 26 says, until he comes. So this little meal is not only a remembrance that looks backwards, it's not only a declaration of what the church is, it's an expectation of a far greater meal, what the New Testament calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. But until then, we have this meal, And that means from the first Easter until the second coming, the church will always have the same center. The living heart of the church will always be the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. Why has Paul reminded us of all this? He's reminded us because if our treatment of one another does not reflect Christ's self-sacrificing love, or if we act in ways that deny our unity in Jesus, then we're not worshiping Jesus at all. We are abusing him. No matter how reverently we pass out the bread and wine, no matter how fervently we sing our songs to him, we are a community built on the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. That's what brought the church into being. That's the only thing that truly unites us 
as a church. And that is what must determine our attitudes and our actions as a church. They are to reflect and exemplify in some way the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. Our attitudes and actions must display that true living heart of the church. And so, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is both a dangerous and a gracious event. Verse 27, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill. And a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. What does Paul mean in verse 27 when he speaks about eating and drinking in an unworthy manner? Well, the first thing to recognize is that the table is only for unworthy people. It's for men and women who recognize their sin and come seeking God's mercy. In that sense, anyone who thinks they're worthy is actually excluded from the table. If they imagine they deserve to be there because of their achievements or their goodness, then the table is not for them. But here, Paul is talking about eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. That is different. And in the context, it means coming to the table while we're being careless about sin or clinging to sin. Specifically, the kind of sin described in verses 17 to 22. Dishonoring or demeaning or being careless about other members of the church family. If we do that, if we come to celebrate Christ's sacrifice while living in defiance of his sacrifice because our attitudes deny our unity in Christ or they don't reflect his self-sacrificing love, if we come to the table like that, Paul says we're guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is what verse 27 tells us. And look what that means then in verse 29. It means we are eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. And that judgment might fall on us. It might in the form of sickness or even death, Paul says. That's what falling asleep means in verse 30. Really? Could that really happen? Well, Paul says it has been happening in Corinth. That is why many among you are weak and ill and some have fallen asleep. Now, the Bible never, ever suggests 
that every instance of illness or death can be traced back to some sin in the person's life. It doesn't tell us that. The book of Job is a very long refutation of that idea. Job was blameless, the Bible tells us, and yet he suffered. But the Bible is equally clear that God can intervene to bring immediate judgment in the form of sickness and death. One writer points out the church is vitally important to God, and he will act to preserve it. Even if that includes striking down those who are destroying the unity and the worship of the church. And notice in verse 32, those who carry on harming the church's worship, even after God has intervened, those people may face final condemnation along with this rebellious world. The celebration of the Lord's Supper is a dangerous event. If you or I, if we eat and drink in defiance of Christ's self-sacrificing love, either because we're failing to trust in his sacrifice for our own salvation, or we're failing to honor members of his church, or we're clinging to some other sin, if we eat and drink in that state of defiance, we are inviting God's judgment on ourselves. It's a serious thing to take the bread and the wine. And at the same time, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is a gracious event. It's a regular God-given opportunity for each one of us to stop and to do what Paul calls us to do in verse 28, to examine ourselves. To pause in our busyness and our distractedness and before God to consider the state of our heart. To reflect on the way we're living. To be honest about our attitudes and then to come back again to the cross where guilty men and women find forgiveness. And you'll notice, by the way, the call is for each one of us to examine ourselves. It's to be personal. The time is not to be spent making judgment about others and what their hearts might be like. We're not called to do that. The Lord's Supper is a gracious wake-up call built into the life of the church. If our hearts are beginning to get hard, if some relationship with a brother or sister is getting tense, if bitterness and division are creeping in, if some sin is getting a grip on us, when we're getting into that state, we are not very likely to pull ourselves up. We're not very likely to make ourselves stop and deal with it. But when we sit around this table, if we have any sensitivity left in us, 
the table will remind us what we need to do. If there's any spiritual life in us at all, this table will soften our hearts. It will make us eager again to honor the Savior we're remembering. As these symbols of Christ's broken body and his shed blood, as they're passed out to us, as we hold them in our hand, God in his grace is not just showing us the way back, he's taking us by the hand and leading us back to seek and receive his forgiveness and then to love others as Christ has loved us. That's why it's so important to make coming to church a habit in our lives because we need these regular wake-up calls. Do not presume God will hunt you down as you sit at home. Here, with his people, this is where he will call you with his word and lead you back to the cross. Here, before the cross, is where he will melt your heart again. And mine too. And then he sends us from the table to love and serve our brothers and sisters. In Corinth, there was one obvious way that they could improve what was going on. In verse 33, Paul says, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. It's not that hard to change things. No more cliques, no more exclusive events that the poor of the fellowship can't be part of. As you celebrate God's grace together, make sure everyone's included. And that is the challenge for us too. Let's be aware of those who are by themselves. Let's be aware of those who are under pressure, who feel like they're sinking under it. Let's be aware of those who feel like they're in darkness in their lives because of some situation. Those who are feeling awkward and on the edges of things. Let's be aware and let's do what we can to embrace one another. To do the opposite of what the Corinthians were doing. Approach someone you don't know well. Invite them for a meal. It's such a simple way to include one another. And if there is someone you're not speaking to, make the first move to put it right with that person. Let's be sensitive and considerate and thoughtful in the way we deal with one another. And let's thank God that he cares enough to keep calling us back to the cross. Our next song reminds us, as God's people, we are to live our whole lives beneath the cross of Jesus. Jesus.